seated. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I went on vacation, and uh, I always enjoy going on vacation. My wife and I uh, have been going on vacation together without the kids at least once a year uh, for the last nine or ten years. And one of the things that we like to do is to go on a cruise. And this year, we went on a cruise to the Southern Caribbean. And uh, people always ask, well, what's so special about a cruise, and why do you like cruises so much? It's uh, pretty simple. For a pastor, uh, there's not really any place that you can go and get away, or you can go and get off the grid where you're not accessible, where you're not reachable. But on a cruise, uh, there's no internet, there's no cell service, there's uh, no way you can turn the boat around and have to come back if you need to. Uh, so pretty much as a pastor, when you go on a cruise, you're off the grid. And what happens is when we get on the boat, one of the first things that I do is I take my cell phone and turn it off and I go to the safe and I put it in the safe and I lock it and I don't turn it on the rest of the week. And it's probably the most relaxing that I can find. Uh, this year was a little different simply because my oldest son got his license and as we were going, uh, we were going for eight days, Southern Caribbean, and as we were going, we were worried because he had his license, now he could drive and he was going to be driving himself back and forth to school uh, so we thought well instead of not using the cell phone we will use it middle of the week we'll call home we'll check in make sure he hasn't wrecked the cars uh, you know or burn the house down or any of that kind of stuff and so uh, but I was worried because I'd heard horror stories about people that had gone on trips or were overseas or were in South America and they turned their phone on and as they turned their phone on all of a sudden text and and emails begin to come and knowing that it's roaming and it's over two dollars per text uh, and the cheapskate that I am and, and with gen general reason I thought I'm not gonna allow that to happen so I read up on it in the internet I turned off all the switches it was supposed to turn off uh, I knew if, if it came on I'd be in trouble because I get uh, all these texts during the day uh, sports text and news text and ministry text and so they all come in and the last thing I wanted was for that to happen when I was on the trip so I turned everything off that I was supposed to turn off on my smartphone got on the trip middle of the week pulled it out of the safe went out on the balcony told the wife uh, you know let's call call and check in on the kids and so I turned the phone on and as the moment the phone began to come on the little light began to show all of a sudden noise it began to bing that texts were coming in and one after the other and after the other and to me it sounded like a cash register ching 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 and and I was freaking out I, I was trying to turn it off I was panicking I was hitting the button and trying to stop it and uh, you know and it won't turn off when it's downloading stuff I was trying to get it to airplane mode or whatever you know somebody had warned me about and so I'm sitting there trying and finally I got it off and I was freaking out I, I was and my heart was beating because I couldn't even go turn it on to check how many texts had been downloaded uh, while I was roaming you know all I saw was a big roaming thing going back and forth as it was chinging to me and, and so I was in a panic I, I thought you know I've just spent the down payment on my next cruise to find out that the Cowboys lost last week you know and, and I thought this is crazy and so I was in a panic, and the friends that go with us on our cruise, uh, he was sitting there on the balcony during this whole time reading and uh, not saying anything, probably laughing at my misery. And uh, he just looked up and, and said, hey, did you check your defaults before you turned it on? And I said, check my defaults? What are you talking about? I turned this switch off and this switch off and this switch off. And he began to explain to me that it didn't matter how many switches I turned off that if my default setting was not changed, 
it didn't change anything. And you see, this morning in our passage, John says something very similar to the believer. This morning, John is going to warn us that even though we've become new creations as Christians, even though that we are new believers, he told us a couple of weeks ago, we are children of God. We still have a fleshly flesh, a sinful flesh that we battle with. And that's our default. And what happens is, if we're not careful, if we don't check it, if we don't gauge it, if we don't register what our default setting is, we could find ourselves in deep trouble as followers of Christ. It also can have lasting consequences for the church. And so John's going to warn us. John's going to introduce something. Matter of fact, uh, where we are in chapter 3, John's going to do something that he doesn't do in, in his gospel and he doesn't do in this letter. He's going to go back and cover over some material that he's already talked about. Basically, what John is going to say is, I know I introduced this stuff, but you really weren't listening. I know I introduced this stuff, but I'm going to say it in a different way because I don't think you really got it. Have you ever had a teacher that did that? Have you ever had a parent that did that, that they told you to do something and they came back and they reminded you? That's John's way of saying this is something that's very, very, very important. Now, if you remember back in chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, really verse 9 and 10, uh, John gives us this, this teaching about the importance of, of our intimacy with God and our intimacy with other believers. John says in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, that we weren't created to be alone. We were created to live in community. That's why church is so important. That's why being a part of a church is important, because we are tied in to other bodies of believers, and we were created to have intimate relationships one with another, to, to draw strength, to encourage, to lift up. But John says something strange in, in 9 and 10. He equates that intimacy we have with one another with our intimacy with God. You see, what John speculates is that if we are not right one with another, we cannot be right with God. And if we're not right with God, then we can't be right one with another. You see, the two are connected. The two are tied together. And so what John is going to do is he is going to build on this idea of how do we connect one to another by talking about love. And not just any kind of love. The sacrificial love we are called to give to each other in the body of Christ. He reminds us that this body is known by our love. Remember, Jesus says, you'll know who my followers are. You'll know who the church is by their love. And you see, what he's trying to help us to realize is that we have got to, as the body of Christ, as different churches, as different denominations within our own churches, we have got to stop looking at all the things that separate us and come together and begin to treat each other with love and respect. Why do you think it was so important that Jesus, in the middle of Matthew 5, when he's talking about murder and hate and malice, and I'll read the passage a minute ago, in a minute, uh, why do you think in the middle of that teaching, Jesus says, if you have something against your brother, against your brother or sister in church, and you come to my table, which is the idea we think of communion, but really it's if you come to worship. If you come to worship God and you have something against your brother, he says, stop. Don't keep going. You need to go before you worship and make whatever it is that's in your heart against your brother right before you can really worship. 
Because you see, you need to understand you can't be in an intimate right relationship with God as long as you have something against a brother or sister in Christ. And so that is very important for John as he's bringing this introduction to us. Now you need to remember, John's writing to Christians. This is to the church, probably the church at Ephesus. We know the church at Ephesus was where John was before he went to the Isle of Patmos. Uh, The church at Ephesus was in a mess. They were having conflicts. They were mad at each other. They were tearing each other down. Uh, They had the group of uh, Gnostics that had come into the church that said they were more spiritual than everybody else. And so because of that, there was jealousy and there was resentment. and, And there was even church splits where people were leaving and going away. And so there was a lot of hurt feelings going on in the church, and John is writing to that context. We have the same thing happen today in our churches. We have the same thing happening today in the church as a whole. Have people that are fighting and arguing, people that come out of what they call the Reformed movement that are arguing with people that are non-Reformed. You have people in the Charismatic movement that are fighting with those that are not Charismatic. We have people in those that say that you've got to believe this version of the Bible or that version of the Bible, that you've got to do this or you've got to do that, and if you're not, you're not as spiritual. Now, see, it would be one thing, and I tell you this in the church all the time, if you have a deep-seated conviction about something, If you feel like God is leading you to do something, then you need to stand on that conviction. But just because God has convicted you of that does not mean that he's convicted your neighbor of that. And it's one thing for us to say that this is the truth for me, but it's not the truth. And I'm talking about in ideas of the Reformation or or, or Reformed movement, Calvinism, the idea of the charismatic movement. There's been a huge controversy this week. John MacArthur, who's a wonderful, incredible pastor out in California, uh, did a conference where he came out and he just blasted anybody that is moving in the gifts of the Spirit, anybody that is Church of God, anybody that's charismatic, and basically called it a strange fire using an Old Testament terminology. What that has done is that has rallied everybody else that doesn't believe the gifts have ceased to fight against him. And so instead of standing for the truth in a lost world, and especially in a nation that's headed to hell, as we talked about last week, what are we doing? We're fighting one another on who loves Jesus more. That was what was going on in the church at Ephesus. And what John said is time out because what you're doing in this fight for righteousness, in this fight for justice, is you're killing one another. You're tearing each other down. You're hurting each other. You need to understand that your relationship one to another is directly related to where you are with God. Yes, you have a new creation. Yes, you have a new operating system. Yes, you are now a child of God. But you need to understand you still fight that old flesh. And what John is going to warn us about this morning is if you're not careful, that old flesh will rise up and it will take control. So what he asks is that we need to make sure we check our default. So look what he says. If you have your blue sheet, you can follow along. If you want to follow along in your Bible, 1 John chapter 3, we're starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. John has said that before, relation back to Jesus' teaching on love. John's going to go even further back this time. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, that's important. Do not be surprised, my brothers. The world hates you, for we know that they have passed from death to life. Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death, and anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, that's that's strong language, but that backs up what Jesus teaches. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now, now what is John trying to get at? Why in the world would he bring up Cain and Abel's story? Why did he go all the way back to the beginning? You remember Genesis 4, what happened with Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons? Cain was a farmer, uh, worked the land. Abel was a rancher. He worked with animals. God wanted worship, so they brought him an offering of worship. Cain brought him an offering of plants, uh, a grain offering. Abel brought him an offering of animals. And the Bible says that God was so pleased with Abel's offering, and he was displeased with Cain's. Now, it wasn't what Cain brought that made God displeased. It was Cain's attitude about bringing it. See, Cain didn't want to bring it. Didn't want to give so much back to God. But when they brought the offering to God, Cain recognized that God was blessing Abel. And it made him angry. Made him mad. So mad that God comes back to him in the middle of chapter 4 and says, Cain, you need to be careful because your anger is going to take control of you and cause you to do things you don't want to do. And Cain ignored him. And over time, Cain's anger continued to fester, and it began to fester, and it turned to bitterness, and it turned to malice, and it turned to hatred, and it got to the point that Cain led his brother Abel out into a field and murdered him. The Bible, the word that's used in, in 1 John here talking about murder is butchered him. He killed him in cold blood. The first murder, the first... Uh, crime we have in human recorded history the first one in the bible and at its core was what religious jealousy at its core it was about religion you see what was happening was uh, cain was jealous that abel was worshiping and sacrificing to god that cain uh, couldn't do that wasn't willing to do that and so he allowed that hatred and that jealousy to fester in him to the point that it led him to act on it so why in the world would John talk about Cain here when he's talking about love? Why in the world would he bring up Cain when he's talking about how we are supposed to love each other in the church? Because you and I need to recognize this morning that our default is Cain. You see, when we look at the flesh, we respond exactly like Cain does. We respond with malice, with jealousy, and with anger and what john is saying is if you're not careful you can come to church you can sing the songs you can read your bible you can lead a bible study you can give you can do all of those things flip all of those switches but none of it will matter if you don't change the default because deep down inside our flesh is exactly the same way as cain's listen to paul described he tells titus this at one time, in Titus 3, at one time we also were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in envy. We lived in malice. We were hated and hated one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of our righteous things, but because of His mercy. You see, we need to recognize that, that when we are hurt, when we are uh, done wrong, our first reaction is not to forgive, to love, and trust. Our first reaction is anger, malice, bitterness, and hatred. See, Cain and Abel were on two sides of the spectrum. Cain represented spiritual death. Cain represented the one who gave himself over to the flesh. Now, remember what Cain did that led him 
to the flesh, it was worship. See, Cain represents those of us in the church that John's been talking about that come to church and play the game and say that they have this and talk like this and act like this, but in reality have never been changed from life to death, from death to life. Abel represents the other side of the coin. He represents that person that's willing to do whatever it takes to honor and trust God. And what John wants to do this morning in reminding us of these two people is ask you to examine your heart. See, it's easy for us to examine our actions. It's easy for us to say, uh, which side do we do what? No, he wants you to examine your heart because that shows where your default setting is. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he stole something? Cheated on him with his wife? Hurt him? Did something wrong? No, why did he kill him? He killed him simply because Abel worshipped God and God blessed him. Because Abel was doing what God had asked him to do. And Cain wasn't willing to go that far. And his jealousy in not being obedient caused him to allow hate into his heart bitterness into his heart malice into his heart and john warns you and i that if we're not careful we head down the same path see john warned us here in in verse 13 he said listen when you are obedient to god when you trust god when you turn off the defaults and act the way god calls you to the world is going to hate you People are not going to like it when you're obedient to God. And even in the church, when you start doing the things that God calls you to do, when you start being obedient, people are going to turn their back on you. People are going to lash out at you. Start trying to read your Bible. Start trying to do the right thing. Say the right thing. Be obedient in every area of your life. And people will start calling you a holy roller. People will start making fun of you. People will start pulling you down. Because you see, we have that spirit of Cain in us. That if we're not obedient, we're going to judge the others that are. And we'll do everything we can to pull them down. John says, don't be surprised that they'll hate you. Don't be surprised, because if you don't respond the way they respond, if you don't act the way they act, then they'll become your enemy. It's exactly what happened to Cain and Abel. John says, if we're not careful... The default will pull us down. See, what he's wanting to help us understand is that love and hate, love and malice cannot live in the same heart. Now, no one in this room would say, my heart is filled with hate. We, we just won't admit that. I mean, we may say, I don't like somebody or this person's marriage, but we don't like to call it hate. Because, see, we like to say hate is for the really bad. Jesus takes it the other way. Remember, John told us that last week, if we don't love, it's hate. Indifference is hate. You say, well, I just don't have an opinion. That's hate. Jesus says if we hate, if we are indifferent, if we're not looking out in love, then it's hate and murder. He takes it to another extreme. He calls it moral murder. Matthew chapter 5, you heard it said. Go read what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you hate somebody in your heart, you might as well be a murderer. You see, what John is warning us is that the idea of hate is more than just something that's out there. It's something that's in here. 
And it's a default setting, and it will destroy your intimacy with God, your intimacy with the church, and it will destroy your walk and your witness. Malice can't exist in the same place. Can't coexist. You see, undealt anger will always turn to hate. Malice, hate, anger, if allowed to fester, will take root and become bitterness. And bitterness will always lash out with hateful actions. Paul gives us a warning in the book of Ephesians. Well-known passage that many of you have heard. Listen to what he says. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. For surely you heard of him and were taught of him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. For you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's the flesh. He said, get rid of it. To be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness. Therefore, because you're being made new, because you're trying to get rid of the flesh, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truth to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must no longer and must work and do something useful with his hands that he may have something to share. And then listen how he turns it around. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs. You see, what he's saying is what happens when we are filled with anger, when we are filled with malice, when we allow it to take root, all of a sudden it comes out in our mouth, it comes out in our actions, and it comes out in the way that we communicate one to another. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you have been sealed. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it. See, just like you're supposed to make a concerted effort, no one told me on my iPhone to go and turn off the defaults. You and I, as believers in Christ, are called to make a concerted effort to rid ourselves of malice, anger, and hatred. Because if you don't, they'll rid you of love and forgiveness and trust. Paul continues and says, what we need to do is put on kindness and compassionate. Be compassionate to one another, forgiving, because Jesus Christ forgave you. You see, you and I need to recognize this morning that our default, when we don't make an effort, when we don't go to change, when we don't allow the Holy Spirit to lead, is always going to be anger and malice. And it destroys the bottle, the life of Cain. So how do we change? Well, John goes on. He explains not just what we're not supposed to have. Now he explains how we're supposed to react. Listen to what he says, verse 16. For this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to kill ourselves for each other. What that means is we're supposed to sacrificially love each other. And it starts in the body of Christ. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? That word in him is the word meno that we looked at last week, which means dwell. How can God's love live, have a house in him, if you're not willing to sacrifice 
If you're not willing to give to those that you call that you love. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. See, he says, listen, that flesh is battling, but you've got to stand. How are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love with a volitional choice. You see, love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is not based on what happened last week. Love is a conditional choice that you make to give to somebody else. To sacrificial love. The word here is agape. That means a sacrificial giving of yourself love. It says we're not supposed to love just with words. It says stop singing about love. Stop teaching about love. Stop preaching about love. Stop talking about love. Stop saying that you love something and do it. Show it. It's a love that's rooted in death. The death of Jesus Christ. You see, here's where, here's where it all comes together. Listen to me. Jesus' example is the example we're to follow. He died for us. Why? For God so loved the world. Those people today that curse God, that make fun of God, the atheists that mock God, Jesus died for them. The men that were there with whips and and a crown of thorns that spat on him, that publicly humiliated him, that, that mocked him, that hung him on a cross and watched him breathe his last, Jesus died for them because he loved them. In a world that turns their back, that walks away, Jesus died for them. He forgave. He showed love instead of hate. He showed compassion instead of malice. So the question for us is what is it that somebody's done to you that you have a right to be angry or hate them for if Jesus showed love? See, people say, well, I have a right to be angry, Pastor. No, you don't. It's not about your right to be angry anymore. Because the Bible says you've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. The life you now live, you live through Christ. And it's no longer about your rights. It's about his righteousness. You see, love, to be real biblical love, has to be lived out. It has to be exampled. And the only way you can get there is to turn off the defaults and trust God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany in the 30s and 40s, Uh, incredible preacher, wrote one of the best books on being a Christian, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, was teaching in the United States in the 30s when Germany invaded France, uh, decided to go back to Nazi Germany. He said, listen, if they ever are going to need the truth, it is now. So he flew back and began to pastor a church in the midst of Nazism. And for the next eight years, seven years, he preached the truth, confronted Nazism, was a thorn in the side. Finally, uh, after Stauffenberg's attempted assassination at Hitler, they round up most of the pastors and ministers and priests, uh, almost 10,000 of them throughout Germany and the nations they controlled and put them in concentration camps. Bonhoeffer was one of them. A week before the concentration camp that he was in was to be 
liberated. They round up the worst people that they couldn't stand, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they hung him. He was 39 years old. But while he was in Germany, in the underground church, he wrote a little book, one of my favorites. It's called Life Together. And it's about living in the Christian community against all odds. And in that, Bonhoeffer identifies several principles that he said will help the church come together in love. Several principles that said no matter what's going on outside, no matter what we deal with, no matter what we face, these are things that we can pull together in love. So I'm going to close this morning by giving you a couple of those examples of how we can show love one to another. And I'm going to use Paul's uh, illustration of the church. He says it's like a body, so I'm going to give you a body part and then explain how Bonhoeffer used that. So let me give you a couple of ways that we can show love. The first one is the mouth. Bonhoeffer calls this the ministry of holding our tongues. Psalms 50 says this, To the wicked, God says, you use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. For you speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. For these things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Think of how much damage we do to one another with our tongues. With the things that we say. With the words that we lash out. The things that come out so quickly. There's an old African proverb that says the axe forgets but the cut log does not. You see we say things and we move on not realizing how much it hurts those we said it to. Bonhoeffer says, we need to learn to show love by shutting our mouths. See, Bonhoeffer says that most of the time when we have an uncontrolled tongue, it's all about self-justification. Either we are trying to pull someone down to our level, or we're trying to raise ourselves up above them. He says we need to learn to be quiet. Stop participating in gossip. Stop speaking negatively against each other. He says, let's show love through the ministry of the tongue. That's the mouth. The second one he lists is the heart. And this is the ministry of meekness or humility. Romans 12, 3 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the measure of faith God has given you. You see what Bonhoeffer says is the only way that we can learn to love each other is to humble ourselves. To see ourselves the way Jesus sees ourselves. Then we will reach out and love one to another. The mouth, the heart. The third thing he says is the ears calls this the ministry of listening. Bonhoeffer says, Just as the love of God starts with us listening to His Word, so the beginning of love for others starts when we listen to them. We need to learn to listen one to another. We need to give our friends and our loved ones the gift of listening. Listening to their heart. Listening to their struggles. Sometimes God speaks through them if we'll only listen. Our mouth, our, our heart our ears, and then he says our hands. That's the ministry of helpfulness. It's just what it sounds like. It means going and helping each other. How can you show someone you love? If you see someone having a struggle, go and help them. You know someone has problems at home, go help them. You have a gift that you can give. Somebody has needs at their house, you can go and help them. Just do it because you love. He says we need to use our hands to serve And he said the shoulders, that's the ministry of bearing. We need to learn to carry each other's burdens. 
Instead of being so quick to take up other people's offense, we need to be quick to take up their burdens and help them carry them. We need to walk the valley with those that are in the valley. We need to walk the struggles with those that are struggling. And then the last thing he says is the feet. The hands, the shoulders, the ears, the heart, the mouth, and then the feet. Why the feet? Because the Bible says how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. What is the feet? He says it means going and speaking encouragement and love and good news to those around us. You see, we need to recognize, church, we are called to love, and it has to start in the body. We can't ever love outside until we love inside. We can't ever love others until we love each other, not just here, but in the general body of Christ. heard a story of a teacher that was well-known for using object lessons in the class. One day, his students were coming into his class, and they noticed that there was a big target on the wall at the back of their classroom and uh, had a big target, and underneath the target were a bunch of darts. And as the students came in and sat down, the teacher said, Listen, today we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask you to draw a picture of someone you don't like, someone who has hurt you, and then we're going to take it and put it on this target, and I'm going to let you throw darts at that person. So the kids got excited. They began to laugh. They pulled out paper, and they began to draw pictures. One girl drew a picture of another girl who had stole her boyfriend, and another boy drew a picture of the guy that was considered the most popular in the class or one of the cool kids. Another one drew a picture of somebody that had picked on him when he was younger. One drew a picture of his younger brother. Someone drew a picture of the teacher going into great detail, every characteristic of the teacher. And after they got finished, the teacher grabbed the pictures, and he went and put them up on the target on the wall. And one by one, he had the students come and get the darts and throw them at their picture. Kids were laughing, having a contest of who could throw the hardest. Some of the students threw so hard that it tore the paper. They laughed and they cut up, taking it all out on these people that had hurt them. When it was done, the teacher had them sit down and walked over and began to take those pictures torn and ripped off of that target. And then he got the target and he took it down. And as he took the target down, behind it, he had placed a big picture of Jesus. And a hush went out across the class as they looked up at this picture of Jesus with holes in it, torn, pierced. And underneath it were the words from Matthew, In so much you do unto the least of these you do unto me. See, church, we need to check our defaults. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. I thank you for what your word means to us. Father, I think all of us in this room struggle in our responses and our reactions and the way we treat one another, the way we act towards one another, the way we talk about one another. Father, call us to love. If we're going to err, let it be on the side of grace. Father, let us stop worrying about our rights and worry about your righteousness and your justice and your mercy and your love. Father, I pray that some in this room that are struggling, God, at home and at work with malice and anger, and some of it's become bitterness, and it, it, it's been years, 
And it's caused them to lash out and hurt even those that aren't involved in it. God, I pray that you'd set them free this morning. God, all it takes is for us to allow you to search our hearts and just show us honestly where our defaults are. And this morning for us to lay those at your feet, to rid ourselves of malice, take our hands off of it, set ourselves free of that anger and bitterness and allow us to love with agape. God, we pray you work in your name. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?